0: Hello, good morning and welcome to Cobden Centre Radio with me, your host Andy Duncan. Today, this morning, I'm very lucky to be speaking to Professor David Howden from St. Louis University in Madrid, Spain. We're talking about his new book Deep Freeze, which he's co-authored with Professor Philip Bagus, which is on Iceland's economic collapse and this book is published by the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Hola, David. Hola, Andy. Deep Freeze, the book, it's been out for a couple of months now and we did a review on it on Cobden Centre a few days ago. Apart from that review, what's been the general reaction to your new book
1: the the reaction is starting to pick up a little bit now uh, the reviews have mostly been positive well i haven't read a negative review so that's a good sign mostly coming out of uh, the states and britain and iceland increasingly so so it's nice it's starting to get a little bit of attention and i haven't heard any real negative feedback about it so i think it qualifies as a success for me what's the reaction
0: being in iceland
1: it started, we just started a promotional campaign in Iceland, writing some articles for some newspapers and getting some interviews. I had an interview with Icelandic State News, interestingly enough, a couple of weeks ago to promote it. And the feedback's been positive. They're really happy to have an outsider's view on the situation to get somebody who's not involved directly with the crisis to give an honest opinion about it.
0: In the book, you have three major recommendations. The first is that Iceland liquidate all of those malinvestments, such as the aluminium smelting and all the housing and so on. Shrink its financial sector, so people go back to fishing in boats rather than becoming options traders, and learn to be fiscally prudent and not splurge into debt to buy consumer items. How do you think they're doing according to those yardsticks?
1: The second one, shrinking the financial sector, that one's going on pretty well. So that's been scoped down in size. I don't worry about that one too much any longer. Liquidating the malinvestments, that one's an ongoing process. So that one needs a little bit of a time to readjust their labor flows and get people working in industries that are maybe a little bit more sustainable in the economy, let's say uh, fishing or industry-based industries. The shrinking of, let's say, the government debt or becoming fiscally prudent, thats one, which is a bit of a an ongoing struggle. Actually, it's been um, sparked a little bit of a controversy maybe lately. I've been writing quite a bit about how Iceland's been more or less successful in this regard of getting down their government deficit and and getting themselves back on this path toward fiscal sustainability. The numbers, when you look at them, or just when we give a quick look at what the country is doing, it doesn't really seem to be... If you didn't know anything about the situation, I guess you would say you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that the government's really making any real efforts to become fiscally sustainable again. So if you look at What happened last year, for example, the government ran a 10 percent deficit debt to GDP or public debt to GDP, I should say, is well over 100 percent right now. It's, I think, around 125 percent. So these numbers seem fairly bad by most everyone's standards. I think the correct way to look at it is to compare it to other countries that were in a similar situation. And by those standards, Iceland really is not doing in that bad a shape as far as being fiscally sustainable. Um, the other thing is to look at the momentum behind the country. So the momentum is that GDP declines that we had, the recession that the country was in, it's starting to abate a little bit. It's still has a shrinking economy, but much more slowly than it did a couple years back. Unemployment is still high by the country's historical standards. It's over 7%. But unemployment, again, is starting to level off. And we're looking at maybe cusp of this all where we're going to start uh, exiting recession. And I think the, the most important thing when I look at the country is its current account balance. And Philip and I, we, we talked about this a lot in the book. The country, just by right of the fact that it had such an overvalued exchange rate, was running a huge current account deficit. It was importing so much more than it was actually exporting, and this was obviously not sustainable for for the long run. If we look at post-collapse, so let's say post-2008 until today, right now the current account is still in a deficit. It's uh, about $50 million in deficit, which is really not that big for the economy, and it's about 10 times better than it was not even two years ago. So I think the path that this economy is taking or the momentum behind it is starting to show signs that it's edging towards recovery.
0: In recent times, the Icelandic government and the IMF have tried a couple of times to try to get the Icelandic people to swallow IMF solutions. But each time they've tried this, the Icelandic people have just turned their noses up at it and just said, no, go away. Do you think the IMF and the Icelandic government are going to stop trying to push these IMF solutions onto Iceland?
1: Yeah, that would be a nice idea. I think Icelanders are fairly resolved in that they don't want the IMF to get in there. I think most countries or most people who live in countries where the IMF is trying to come into to make some changes don't want them involved at all. I think the IMF is actually one of the reasons why Iceland's recovery isn't actually stronger than it otherwise would be. So if you look at one of the big problems in Iceland, it was a debt problem. The IMF came in and made some guarantees and made some loans to keep this economy going. It's the same old story over and over. They gave the loans and then the Icelandic government itself didn't feel it was necessary to make as aggressive of cuts as they otherwise would have to if they didn't have this external funding source. So... I think Icelanders are are fairly certain that they don't really need the IMF in there. I think I'm fairly certain as well that the IMF doesn't really have a role to serve in Iceland at all, and hopefully it picks up on these hints and stays away from it.
0: If you look at West Germany and East Germany, or North Korea and South Korea, you have these kind of perfect examples of very similarish kind of nations running under different political systems, and then you can compare the political systems. So if we say that Iceland is free of the IMF, if we take another North Atlantic island and we go down a little bit south and, and use them as the counterexample, where the IMF are very heavily involved in Ireland, how do you think the situation in Ireland is developing in, say, comparison to the situation in Iceland? I think that's a,
1: that's a great comparison to make. We don't oftentimes in economics get these clean comparisons. East and West Germany, that's a good one, and North and South Korea, that's a good one. Ireland and Iceland, that's about as close as we can come in this situation. So... Ireland sitting there they have everybody knows that they have a huge problem and yet at the same time nobody really wants to admit the truth or or go into some kind of motions that would try to get rid of this problem so they have a huge public debt problem they have a big deficit problem as well i mean the deficit was over 30% of gdp uh, last year let's say And yet at the same time, everybody realizes that they have this huge spending problem which is not sustainable in the long run. And nobody wants to come in and say, let's get rid of it or let's try to pare this down to something that's a little bit more reasonable. So the IMF, the EU and the ECB step in and give Ireland um, these loans to keep this game going a little bit while longer. And what that does, it might seem to be a good solution at first. Okay, well, they, they have a problem, so we'll loan them some money to keep them going. But it just delays the inevitable. And I've written articles for the Copton Centre before that specifically touch on this fact that there's no way Ireland can get out from uh, this debt load that it has. There's no way that it can possibly get back on its feet without some kind of debt restructuring I.e., default by another name, or without doing some significant spending cuts.
0: I'm a bit of a secret Max Kaiser fan on the sly. I never ever reveal that in public. And I've been watching some Max Kaiser documentaries <laughs> on his uh, website. And he revealed recently that the Irish government is about to start taxing pensions, which absolutely horrified me. What do you think the chances are of other European governments starting to tax their people's pensions, raiding the future to pay for some present government spending?
1: Yeah, I think they're probably pretty high. Uh, I was a little bit surprised, actually, when I read that Ireland was doing it because I would suspect that most people with money in Ireland and there's still quite a few people left with a lot of money in Ireland, would take this as a clear sign that maybe our savings aren't as safe as they once were, and maybe we should start looking at flowing this money into a safer jurisdiction. So I would expect in Ireland anyway that you'd get a capital flow out. In the rest of Europe, I would imagine, especially given that every European country, or at least the vast, vast, vast majority of them have underfunded public pension schemes, that one solution to this would start to look at either taxing them more aggressively or even reducing these benefits by law in order to get them more on
0: side. Of course, we needn't worry actually too much because it's only for four years and it's only 2%, and as we know, all temporary small taxes stay small and temporary and they always disappear. (laughs) If we take our crow and we fly our crow a bit further south over the kind of Bay of Biscay, we get to Portugal. Interesting things happening there. You're very close to them in Madrid there. How's things developing in Portugal? Portugal at the moment.
1: Uh, Portugal's actually an interesting example. I think it's interesting in the sense that I don't think that this is necessarily such a debt problem. It's more of a flow problem in the sense that they run a huge current account deficit and they don't sell enough goods to finance the consumption that they have. So it's a typical problem maybe of just consuming more than you actually have savings to fund. Again, this is the same old case, the IMF and the ECB and the EU went in there uh, within the last month and said, okay, well, we're going to give you about 75 billion euros to keep this going. Okay, well, that would be okay, or that would sustain a government deficit, and that would maybe keep the government side of things going a little bit longer. I think in Portugal's case, this is just delaying the inevitable. And what you need to correct this actual inevitable is try to get this current account deficit down. And that implies Portugal needs to either stop consuming as much as it is or start exporting or start selling more goods to actually raise cash than it's importing or that it's actually consuming. Now, in Portugal's case, this is a little bit difficult. The biggest export market for Portugal is Spain, and Spain has its its own problems here right now. So if you're looking at increasing your exports to, to your neighbors, I don't think Portugal's going to have much success looking to its biggest trading partner. That leaves two options. It can either look at some devaluations, internal or external. So on the internal side, maybe Portuguese people could start taking some wage cuts to make them competitive again. On the external side, it would be an exchange rate devaluation. That's not going to happen at all. So I really don't know where Portugal's solution lies. I would tend to think one good solution would be Portuguese people taking nominal wage cuts to make themselves more competitive, but this is painful for them to do, and I don't know if the political will is there to start making these adjustments or to start the will for regular Portuguese people to start recognising the fact that they need to start making these adjustments.
0: But something has to give in the end, doesn't it? If you keep smashing a hard rock against a hard place, something eventually gives. So do you think it's going to be the wage deflation?
1: I'd be interested to see what's going to give first. It's common tale among all of the European periphery that these countries are just not competitive uh, staying in the euro. The, the two solutions, either you exit the euro and go back to your national currencies, which would imply a, a necessary devaluation, or you could stay in the euro. You would just have to fix your problem internally, which is these nominal wage cuts or uh, nominal cost reductions. I don't think right now there's the political will to leave the euro on either side of the fence in, in europe's core i don't think the core countries really wanna dissolve the union yet the monetary union. And I don't think on the periphery, as much as there's some countries talking about a possible exit, I don't think there's the will either there to leave the currency union. And then internally, there's very few people who seem to recognize the necessity of of actual wage cuts. So I I really would be interested to see which one is going to break, because one of these two things has to to break first. Either we, we reduce our costs internally to make ourselves more competitive. Or we change our exchange rate to to get the same effect
0: we'll just have to watch that space you mentioned earlier about cash flows and managing cash flows we'll fly over spain we'll be coming back to spain later but if we keep flying east now we eventually hit the greek kind of peninsula and there at the moment the imf are there in situ with the greek government trying to do all sorts of things but the greek population are much, much more resistant than the Portuguese uh, population seem to be. There seem seem to be a cross between Ireland and Iceland going on there, with uh, lots of people refusing to pay for bus tickets and refusing to pay taxes point blank to tax inspectors and so on. How do you think the Greek situation is going to develop, given that German people are talking about the Greeks having to give the Germans the Acropolis and other things, like islands and various things?
1: They have a real funding problem. There's a problem on the revenue side of things. There's a problem on both sides. They have an expenditure problem that they they don't know how or they don't have the will to reduce their expenses or their expenditures. And at the same side, uh, there's a real revenue problem in that the government can't possibly raise enough money to fund these programs that it has. Okay, great. So again, we have the IMF and the ECB and the the EU waltzing in and saying, we'll give you loans to sustain this situation. Now there's a lot of talk that maybe in Greece they should start increasing tax rates to try to get government revenues up or to try to get rid of these uh, deficit situations. Well the the funny thing in Greece is or in any country increasing your tax rates it only really gives you more tax revenue if you can actually collect on your taxes and Greek people are by and large notoriously difficult to collect your taxes from. The rates of tax evasion are high. There's a huge underground economy which I would suspect is largely driven by high tax rates that Greek people are trying to avoid by going underground so if they increase their taxes to try to stimulate this type of revenue I think what you're going to see is a further drive towards Greek people evading taxes, avoiding them going underground and then the paradox result that you actually end up with less tax revenue. It's actually uh, a textbook example of the uh, the Laffer curve where we're on the declining slope of it where you increase tax rates and the government actually ends up with less tax revenue as a result as more and more people backlash and avoid paying taxes. Greece at the same time they're, they're pulling these I would call them idle threats or I would call it almost maybe a publicity stunt of maybe talking about exiting the monetary union. I think they're starting to make some, what I would consider are idle threats in the sense that they don't really want to leave the monetary union, but the threat of them leaving is sufficient that the core countries, let's say Germany in particular, would worried enough of the detrimental consequences for the euro as a common currency that they would maybe start to negotiate uh, some concessions on the the loans that they've made to Greece or start making some type of changes to the the terms of the loan that they gave them a year ago.
0: Now, let's fly back west again. Before we get to the gates of Heracles, we'll land in Spain. And I was just reading on Miss Shedlock's blog recently that there's a story saying that Spanish tax revenues have just collapsed by 16.8% in the last year. Do you think, Spain's going to join the Greek-Irish-Portuguese club.
1: Here's another good example, just like in Greece. When we talk about tax revenues declining in Spain, so Mish reports they're down 17%, uh, let's say, year on year. About one year ago, back in June, the Spanish government thought it would be a great idea to increase revenue by increasing uh, the value-added tax year. So they increased it from 16 to 18%. What's that? Two, 2% on 16 is a 12.5% increase on your VAT. Uh, and here we see a year later that our total tax revenues are, are collapsing by 17%. It's a good case in point that we're in a situation where governments can't solve their revenue problem by, by just increasing their, their regular revenue streams, which in the Spanish case, it was increasing uh, the tax rates. In Spain, maybe Spain's a little bit different than some other countries. I'm mildly optimistic about it. It has, a, it has an expenditure problem, so it runs some really high government deficits. At the same time, the absolute levels of at least public sector debt are, are quite low, under well below 70% of GDP right now. So this isn't such a pressing problem for the country right now. The problem is, though, in the future, if these deficits continue, then your debt problem or your debt load keeps growing and growing and growing. And you can't really solve a debt problem by continually running deficits. I think if there's one lesson which maybe uh, European countries or all countries in the world should have learned over the last three or four years is that you can't solve a debt problem just by running perpetual deficits. So here's a situation where Spain actually needs to fix up its current expenditures and maybe get them down a little bit before it becomes a larger problem in the in the future. Is Spain's real crisis today is more on the revenue side of things. So there's businesses are declining, GDP is down, unemployment is, depending on the figure that you read, just under or just over 20%. So it's not too hard to see that there's a real crisis going on in Spain. And particularly, it's a revenue crisis. They just can't generate any revenues or they can't make any sales. Well, this, if you want to look at maybe where some of the sources are for this, you'd have to look at maybe what it's like to be a business owner in Spain or what it's like to actually be an entrepreneur or what it's like to, to try to start a new business from scratch. I had a funny conversation last night with a friend of mine who's Dutch. He's actually trying to start a business here in Spain. He's just going through the starting stages now where he's going to the, I guess, the government offices to register his business and get his tax codes and things like that. And he was recounting all the stories to me of what a bureaucratic mess it is and all the fees that he has to pay. And then he was thinking about just scrapping his plan of starting his business here. And he's Dutch. So he said, well, it might just be easier, even though I prefer to do it down here, to just incorporate myself up in the Netherlands and export my business down here to Spain. So here we have a real problem where we don't have enough businesses or we don't have enough job creation going on in Spain. And here's somebody who's trying to come into this country to actually do something and then finds out that it's nearly impossible to do that or at least the cost of doing so are outweighing the benefits he thinks he's going to get out of it.
0: So our wise overlords are failing to be wise again. There's, there's a shock. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to ask you a couple more things. I know it's a movable feast on the euro but you know much more about it than I ever will. So if you could give me a bet on the five-year survival of the euro with all of the countries that are currently still in it, still in it, what percentage do you reckon? <laughs> I think that's a good question. That's a tough call.
1: The euro, I don't think it's not sustainable the way that it's being run right now. I would put it like this. It is almost impossible that in five years' time, if things do not change in the way that this common currency union is managed, that it will at least partially fail, with some countries maybe making an exit from it by their own choice or or being forced out. Part of it I can't understand because it's been fairly strong. Even after the recent sell-off, it's been fairly strong over, well, especially over this year and over recent history. And I just don't see where the strength comes from because it's really... It's an uncertain mess. Nobody knows... Uh, what countries are still going to be using this currency in the next couple of years. Uh, nobody even knows what countries will be using it at the end of this year. If Greece's idle threats to exit turn out to be not so idle. My best guess is I don't really have a best guess, <laughs> to be honest. I think, I think changes will have to be made. I'm not so optimistic that we're going to have 17 countries all using the euro five years from now, and my, my guess is we'll have fewer than that rather than more.
0: Now, you know that I think Deep Freeze is an absolutely splendid book. It takes very, very complicated, necessarily complex things and breaks them down into nice simple units that even I can understand, which is fantastic. Are you working on anything else at the moment? I
1: have some work on fractional reserve banking. So I have some work that's maybe focusing on uh, what some of the problems are with the current banking system that we have, why they're problematic economically, legally, et cetera, et cetera. Philip and I were actually working on uh, updating deep freeze a little bit. We'd like, obviously, the the Icelandic situation is a is a real problem in some some specific countries of Europe, uh, Britain, the Netherlands and Germany, and we'd like to bring some focus to these people because obviously there's lots of account holders with these Icelandic banks in each of those countries that lost out on some money or their respective treasuries lost out on some money. So we're working on maybe promoting this or getting the word out to these countries maybe that there's something that actually deals with the problems that they have. Going through my, my project for the summer, it's almost over now. I have a book actually that I'm editing, a collection of essays called Institutions in Crisis. European perspectives on the recession. It's hopefully coming out in uh, August or September from Edward Elgar, and it's a collection of essays that looks at what the specific problems are, what some of the specific aspects of the recession actually are in Europe from different European economists. So we're looking at the labor market, the common currency zone, the fiscal deficits, the the high levels of debt, both public and private, and we're trying to put our finger on exactly what it is that went so wrong here in the European
0: recession. That sounds exactly up the alley of the Cobden Centre, and I very much look forward to reading that particular book. As to Deep Freeze, I think every Cobden Centre listener and reader should get hold of a copy. You can download it from mises.org for absolutely free, in ePub and PDF, and even buy a copy if you should so desire. I'd like to thank David for his time this morning, and thank you, and goodbye, David.
1: Thanks for having me again, Andy. Take care.